One day she was healthy, vibrant, running family business, and the next day she woke paralyzed, unable to move her arms or legs. The doctors had no idea what was going on. They tried everything they knew to do, but finally, in failure, they told her husband, we can do no more. Go to the church. You need to see a special priest. He asked, why? Why should I see the priest? What can he do? The doctors told him, this priest can see evil. What is snap judgment? It's that left, that right, jump. Or don't. Snap judgment? Storytelling with the beat from NPR. Stay tuned. Come on in. Closer. Closer. Get real close. Because you're listening to Snap Judgment, the podcast. From NPR. And PRX. Get ready. One, two, three. From NPR and PRX, welcome to Snap Judgment. My name is Glenn Washington, and just yesterday, I spent the night at the graveyard, waiting, waiting. And you might ask, Glenn, why did you do that? That is not typical black man behavior. And in that, dear listener, you would be correct. But here, at Snap Judgment, we spare no expense. We will risk any danger to get to the heart of the story. It was dangerous. But I needed to know, is there bomb in Gilead? Do the spirits need their story shared? I heard the rustle. I saw the dark shadows. And yes, yes, I tasted fear. Today on Snap Judgment, we proudly present Spooked. Stories from near and far about those things that go bump in the night. And let me just say this early on. This is no Texas Chainsaw Massacre. This, of course, is public radio. But however, however sensitive listeners might find themselves disturbed by the stories we are about to present We begin today's show in a land far away. A very, very dear friend of mine, Chandra Shivikumar, reveals how his family came face to face with the dark power. This happened in Sri Lanka, a place called Pategama, which was our family's tea estate up in the mountains. My aunt and my uncle managed it, basically. And one day she was totally fine, you know, running around up there in the mountains. And the next day she woke up and she could not move. She was paralyzed from the neck down. Paralyzed? Paralyzed. She couldn't move her limbs and they had no idea why. About half an hour after she woke up, she had trouble breathing. My uncle had to throw her in the car. They flew down these crazy windy roads down through the mountain and went to Colombo, the capital city, and they went straight to a hospital where she was in the ICU right away. Why was she paralyzed? Well, they couldn't, they couldn't tell. They had no idea. And finally, after three months, they said, look, we have no idea what to do. We don't know what to tell you. But there's this Sri Lankan priest. He's a Catholic priest. He might have some answers for you. Our folks are Hindu. Why? 
they decided, why? Why are they going to this priest? He had a reputation of being able to find answers where no one else could. He told my uncle later on that one day he was just a regular old Catholic priest and running Mass, and the next day he had some terrible gift from God, he said, that allowed him to see evil. So my uncle said, all right, we don't have any other choice. My uncle went and found him. Yeah, he walked to the ICU with my uncle, who is a, he's a very, he was a very practical fellow and not totally given to the belief in the occult like a lot of my relatives, or even myself for that matter. So he was a little skeptical, but he walked in with this man and the man just said, I see evil, evil has been done here. And he was so adamant about it that my uncle had to listen to him and then proceeded to follow his direction. What were his directions? He said, look, you and I have to get up back to the tea estate right away. So my uncle put him in the car, and they drove back four hours. For what was he looking for? Well, the source of the evil. He said, basically, my aunt had been cursed. By the time they got there, it was about midnight. The priest said, look, you and I, we have to walk around the grounds until I can find this. So he spent an hour walking through the lawn, then through every single room in the house. It was a big, big, beautiful estate house. And he got to their bedroom, and he looked out the window, and he said, there, I see the curse. And my uncle looked out, and he said, I don't see anything. What are you talking about? He's like, I see it. It is right there. It is there in the corner of the house. And my uncle said, well, what are we supposed to do now? He's like, go find some men, get some shovels, and meet me down there on the corner. So he rounded up a few of the workers who were there, and the man said, well, start digging. Right here. He knew exactly what it did. Yeah. He said he could see it. He could see a glow, an evil glow, emanating from underground. And they dug for about half an hour. And then his shovel hit this little metal container. He heard this clang, so he stopped. And the priest said, okay, hold on. And he looked into this little hole, and he said, yeah, it's right there. Please bring that up. My uncle jumped into this little hole that he had dug. There was a little tin box. And the priest said, have you ever seen this before? He said, no. And he said, did you put this here? My uncle said, no, I have no idea what this is. So the priest said, okay, good. He opened up this tin box. What's inside? What's inside? What's inside? What's inside? And inside this little tin box lay this little voodoo doll. It was made out of mud and clay, and it was wrapped in some kind of cloth. It was in the shape of a human, a little body. And in this little mud figurine were some needles. Needles in the ankles, needles in the wrists, and one needle right in the throat. And like I'd said before, upon entering the ICU, she'd had to get a tracheotomy because she couldn't breathe. My uncle was pretty excited and really nervous and a little scared. Actually, really scared, he told me. And the priest said, I need to replenish my energies. And he shut the little tin box and he said, look, go find as much liquor as you can. They got all the whiskey they could collect. They went upstairs back to the bedroom. And this priest said, all right, you and I are going to drink right now for the next half hour. And these guys finished off a few bottles of whiskey. A few bottles? I think it was like, yeah, two bottles of whiskey that finished off, polished off. <laughs> Uncle said that was the drunkest he's, he's ever gotten in his life. And he thought, now that we've discovered the voodoo doll, we can get drunk and sleep and head back in the morning. But instead, the priest said... Go get your keys. We're going for a ride. We have to take this doll to the ocean right away. My uncle said, there's no way we should, you know, we should not do this. This is a suicide trip. And the priest said, I'm really sorry, but, you know, we have to. And this is something that mothers against drunk driving would not be pleased about in the slightest. Yeah, this was some serious drunk driving. And they, this is in the middle of the night. 
in the middle of through a jungle area. This is in the middle of nowhere. I mean, this is four hours up a steep incline, not paved. And my uncle said there's no way that we should have survived that trip with all the boulders and trees and ruts and bison and buffalo roaming through, jackals and komodo dragons, cobras and tigers. Well, maybe no tigers. And all sorts of crazy monsters lurking in those jungles back in the day. They make it through. They made it through. They got to the ocean. The priest said, all right, get out of the car. And they stumbled their way to the ocean, to the beach. And he took the little voodoo doll out of the tin box. And he gave it to my uncle. And he said, throw it as far as you can. So my uncle took it and just threw it off right into the ocean waves. And he saw the thing disintegrate. And then the priest said, all right, let's go to the hospital. So they got back in the car. And they drove right to the hospital to see my aunt. Doctors came to my uncle and said, I don't know what just happened, but this past few hours, something has occurred. And miraculously, somehow or other, my aunt said, hey, guess what? In the past hour, I'm able to move. There's more feeling in my toes and my fingers. And my uncle said, I have no idea what happened or what to believe, but something crazy happened that night, thanks to this priest. What did your uncle owe the priest? What did he give the priest in return? You know, I don't think he gave him anything, actually. The priest said, this is my duty to humanity. This is a gift from God. You know, he said it's also a curse. But a he curse? Said, Why? Well, because he has this ability now to feel and see and sense evil wherever he goes. So I imagine it wasn't such a pleasant experience for him. Everywhere he went, he saw the bad stuff. Yeah, I guess I think it actually, he saw a little too much of it. Why? Well, I asked my uncle what happened to this guy. You know, I thought maybe I could go track him down. And, but my uncle said he's now serving a life sentence for the murder of his wife. He murdered his wife? He poisoned her to death, yeah. He has a wife as a priest. Why would he poison his wife? I'm not sure. Um, I, I, yeah, it was shocking. And my uncle basically said that the word on the island was this man had stared into the abyss a little too much and it had started to stare back. And he had fought off all this evil for so long and it started to infuse his soul. You know, he uh, started doing bad, evil things himself. You're listening to Snap Judgment and if I haven't told you already, there is an evil presence amongst us and Snap Judgment is bound and determined to touch it, to taste it, and prove that it's real. Our own intrepid reporter, Rita Daniels, goes where no person should go and discovers what no person should know. So at the time of this story, I'm a senior in college, and I have been working my little booty off for four years. I was very sleep-deprived, and my adrenals were probably completely spent. So one morning, I had this complete meltdown. In hysterics, I go over to my guidance counselor, the school advisor, and I announce that I am dropping out of school. And she pulls up my student records. She tells me, Rita... Just listen, you only have one class left to take to graduate. In global perspectives, you can just go and take a trip and do this independent study, and all you have to do is keep a journal. 
So I start doing research, and I find out about this little town on the tip of Baja called Todos Santos, this desert oasis a mile off the Pacific Ocean overlooking all these old sugarcane valleys. And I get in touch with this property manager in this little town, and she speaks perfect English, and it turns out that she's like an expat. I tell her that I want the cheapest rental possible, and she gives me two choices. The first one is this cinder block concrete one-room little place like five miles outside of town for the same price is this 10-room historic hacienda in the middle of town. This property manager explains to me that I'm coming in the off-season, and so, you know, that's why the price is so great. I book a plane ticket. A week later, I get this little old skeleton key in the mail and a hand-drawn map of the town. And I finally arrive in this little village, ask some directions, and really proud of myself because it's the first time that I've really ever used my Spanish in a real situation. Izquierda de la recha. So I walk up this road and I find the house and I hear this piano music and it sounds like it's coming from inside the house. By the time I finally get the door open, the piano music has stopped. So I get in the house. There's like these old candelabras hanging from the vigas. Then there's these bookshelves with these leather-bound books. And it's just room after room. And I find this little note on the kitchen counter. And it's from the property manager. And she's just like, welcome, you know, this is how you get to a little store. And here's a good place to go for tacos and blah, 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 blah. And you'll need to buy some matches or some lighters for the stove. Because the gas stove, you had to ignite it with something. So I walk out that night. There's these packs of little kids everywhere playing soccer in the streets. And it's just all very lively. And I buy coffee for the morning, and I buy this twin pack of these long-reach lighters. So I go back to my new house, and I make a cup of tea, and I plug this fan in and, like, direct it straight onto the bed, because it's 11 o'clock at night, still, like, 95 to 100 degrees. And then a couple minutes later, I realize that I can still hear the fan going. But the breeze is not blowing on me. I look up. The base of the fan has been turned 90 degrees to face the wall. And I'm like, what? How did that happen? And then instantly, I'm just overcome with sleep. Can't hold my eyes open anymore. It's like all I can do to flip the light off and I just fall asleep. At about four in the morning, I guess, when it's still really, really dark, I am just thrown awake. And I start to hear this click, click, click. It sounds like one of those lighters. When I wake up in the morning, I go to make a cup of coffee, and that lighter, that new lighter that I just bought, won't spark. I hold it up to my ear and I shake it. It's empty go on with my day. And I have a very, very lovely day. I wander around the town and I go to take a stroll into the ocean and I meet these local surfers and they're my age and they're really laid back. Eriberto and the other one is Aris and they speak perfect English. 
I can tell these guys are maybe going to be like my new friends. Ediberto, he asked me, where are you staying? You know, these guys seem cool, but I'm not stupid. I'm a little hesitant to give up that information so easily, but they seem harmless. And so I say like, oh yeah, you know, this hacienda right in town, El Torreon. And it's like... The light is weird because it's about sunset, but I swear to God, it looks as though Eriberto goes completely white. And he looks over at Aris, and they just immediately start speaking rapid-fire Spanish to the point where I cannot understand a single word that they're saying. And this goes on for a couple minutes, and then they just look back at me, and they're like, do you want to come with us to get some dinner? I go, okay, grab some tacos and some tequila and a few beers. They drop me off, and when I'm getting out of the car, they say, good night and good luck. So I'm kind of laughing to myself, and I get to the door, and I hear this piano music again. And when I open the door, the music just gets louder. The living room is right when you walk in, and like, there's the piano, and the keys are just fully going. This is not a player piano. And there's no little reel anywhere inside of this piano. And I'm like, okay, I don't know what the hell is going on here. And I know that I've had a couple drinks, but this is weird. Within about 30 seconds, the piano stopped playing. The keys stopped moving. And I just went into the bedroom, turned the fan on, started reading. In about 10 minutes, the fan wasn't blowing on me anymore. I looked over, and sure enough, the base of the fan had been turned 90 degrees, and I was exhausted. Flipped the light off, and I fell asleep. Well, this night, at about 4 in the morning, my eyelids were thrown open, and I felt this presence forcing itself into my body. I heard right next to my head once again that click, click, click of that freaking lighter. It was as though somebody was coming and like sitting on top of me. A physical weight and it's very, very hot. It started at my feet and it was slowly moving up through my ankles and then to my calves and then to my knees kind of taking over and I didn't know what was going to happen if it got to my heart. I thought that's like where my soul was. I wouldn't call myself a religious person even at that point in time, but I had been raised Catholic. And so all I knew to do, I just got on my knees and I started saying, I renounce you in the name of Jesus Christ. I renounce you in the name of Jesus Christ. I was rocking back and forth. I kept like throwing up just on the floor right next to me. I want to laugh at myself and at the same time, I'm totally crying because it was really real and it was very, very scary. Finally, there's like this little ribbon of light at the horizon line that I can see through the shutters and I'm completely exhausted because I feel like I've just fought a battle or something and there was a pounding on the door. So I was totally freaked out and it was Eriberto, my new surfer buddy from the night before and I just grabbed him and hugged him and held him to my chest and I said, I'm so glad you're here. I don't know if that was what he was expecting, but he just looked at me. He said, yeah, I thought I would come check on you. I kind of told him what happened, and he 
broke the news to me that the house had been the mayor's home. The mayor's wife was this great musician, this pianist who had toured the world, and she died when she was 21 years old, exactly my age, in that home, in childbirth. And she had haunted the place ever since. And especially, she definitely messed with females. She was very notorious with all the locals. So I moved out and I took the little cement cinder block shack in the dusty cactus five miles from town. And I lived a little more humbly. And I still had an incredibly fabulous last semester of college. That was Rita Daniels, and I'm not generally one to criticize, but some people don't know when to run. All this staying in the house with the ghost playing the piano, not me. I would be outie. But you don't need to be outie. We're going to be back in just a few seconds with more terrifying tales of terror. Stay tuned. Folks, just a quick announcement here. Thanks for listening to the Snap Judgment podcast. We wanted to let you know that Snap Judgment, the television show, is finally launching. It begins airing this week on public television. And we invite you to check it out. We think you're going to love it. You can go to worldcompass.org to find your local broadcasting schedule. That's worldcompass.org. Snap Judgment, the television show. Welcome back to Snap Judgment. My name is Glenn Washington, and please stay under the covers. Keep your flashlight at the ready. Keep the silver bullets ready to go as well. We're right in the middle of our spooked episode, and we don't want any problems. Please don't call us. Do not call your public radio station about the werewolves and the vampires. They won't know what to do. It is scary out there, I know. It's scary here in Oakland sometimes. The problem we have it's the sheer number and variety of the undead because people hail from all over the world. When you move in, you don't just settle in with your families and your stuff. No, 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 no. People bring their ghost with them. This next story was produced and lived by Snap Judgment's own Miss Stephanie Fu. It's a dark and lonely road, somewhere around Santa Clara, California. My father's in his car, driving his friend Lee home from a dinner party. His friend Lee is quiet, staring out the window. All of a sudden he said, don't look back, don't look back now, out of nowhere. And his eyes was big, big like lanterns. And I said, why not? And he said, there's a ghost in the back seat. Now, hearing this would send shivers down anyone's spine. But my father has always been a rational man. Why did you tell me that the tooth fairy wasn't real when I was four? I thought as a four-year-old you should know that all these things are inventions just to keep kids happy. And at this point in his life, 
Lee was not the most reliable of sources. He was really going through a tough time. He lost his job. He's he's psychotic. What it means is he hears voices. He sees things that are not there. He's mentally unstable. The things he saw and heard would usually come out late at night, around two in the morning. He said the ghosts live in the chimney. He just said, "I hear voices. I hear things. I hear knocking, 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 knocking." My dad tried to convince him to see somebody, but Lee refused. And there just comes a point where your friends have to help themselves. But one day, on a business trip to China, he brings up his friend to some colleagues, and they mention a seer. What? What's a seer? Is it like a psychic? I guess he's a psychic, a Buddhist priest. He's a friend of a friend, and I said, "Hey, I'm, I don't want to pay money for a bunch of hocus pocus, right?" And my friend said, "No, no, no, no. He doesn't charge at all. He won't take a penny. As a matter of fact, if he takes money, he will lose his power." So my dad says, "What the hell? It's free. He's already in China. Let's just see how it goes." They meet in a restaurant. The seer is this totally normal guy. He's wearing a T-shirt. He's a construction worker, and he's completely uneducated. He knows zero English. He knows nothing about the internet. I'm sure he doesn't. I think I'm not even sure he's very literate. This guy, which made his abilities all the more strange. Actually, all I had to do was say, "Well, I have a problem with my friend," and he already basically started to talk like he knew what I was talking about. He says, "Yes, I see him." And I see what his problem is. He looked away for an instant, and then he says, "I see his house." I asked him, "You know, you don't even know where the house is." He says, "Oh, I know where the house is exactly." So he starts describing the house. Okay, the house is bright in one spot, facing this direction. However, that doesn't prove anything. Okay. But just as my dad is getting skeptical, the seer gets more and more specific. He goes through what the floors are made of, where the hot tub is. The color of the couch, the shape of the coffee table, and each time, he's right. And then he uses his hands to illustrate the limbs of a strange gnarled tree in Lee's backyard. And when I went back to the house, I looked at the tree. My God, the directions the branches were pointing is exactly the way his arms moved. It's like a spiritual Google map. By then, you know, my goose pimples are starting to grow in my arms. This is really eerie. Then the seer says that Lee wasn't even supposed to live in this house. He'd bought another house ten years ago, but moved into this one instead because his wife wanted to. My father had not known any of this, and there is absolutely no reason why the seer would know. But later, he finds out it's true. The history is true. You can see across oceans, and you can see it back in time. Okay, so like I can see stuff, cool. But so what? What does this have to do with Lee's visions? And this guy said there are two ghosts in this house. Who's bothering your friend? <coughs> One of the ghosts he, he described was an old white woman who's all hunched over and she hops around like a bird, hopping. The other ghost he described was an old man. And the old white man had a big gash, a big bloody gash right across his chest. And they hang out right next to the chimney. I asked him, "How do you see things?" He said, "You know, as I talk to you now, someone over there is seeing for me." The seer tells my dad that the ghost world is kind of like a bureaucracy. 
Areas in the world divided up like cities are ruled by deities who see everything that happens there, and they monitor the actions of ghosts. Ghosts are souls that don't have enough energy or chi to re-enter the cycle of reincarnation. So they loiter around the world like it's a 7-Eleven parking lot. But if a ghost claims that you did something to him horrible in a past life, or maybe if he just doesn't like you, he can submit a request to the deities to take revenge on you. So I did ask him, okay, are there spirits around all the time? And he looked around. He was in the restaurant. He said, oh, over there next to the door, the two of them hanging around. And I said, oh my God. But the ghost can't get to you unless you're low on chi. Okay, your energy level is like an immune system. If you're happy, and if you're a strong person, no ghost can come anywhere near you. But if you're depressed and low on energy, oh, <laughs> you're in deep shit. So I asked him, "What can you do? What can we do to help him?" And the seer says that since he's thousands of miles away, he's afraid to send a spirit to chase off the ghosts because he doesn't want to get them even more angry. But there's a really easy solution. Lee should just make tea from leaves of a pomelo tree. In Chinese culture, pomelo leaves are supposed to ward off bad luck. There's only one problem. I don't know. There are no pomelo trees on California. So my dad's like, "Okay, I'll smuggle some in through customs." And the and this seer says, "No, you don't need to. There's a pomelo tree in the back of his house." I said, "No, there are no pomelos in California." And he says, "No." No, no, no. There is one. On the way back, I'm rethinking. Holy smoke! If there is a tree, really a pomelo tree, I wouldn't know what to think. So he gets back and he goes to Lee's house. He doesn't tell him about the bloody cash and all that because Lee's already unstable and he doesn't want him to flip his lid. So he just sort of glosses over the seer's visit and says, "So." What does it take for a guy to get some pomelo leaves around this joint? And Lee's wife says, "Of course, there's a pomelo tree." When I heard that, I almost freaked out. I mean, absolutely freaked out. How the heck do you explain that? I don't know how to explain that. I'm not the whatever unreal being type of guy. In my own life, there's never been any evidence. Of ghosts, man. This is as close as to physical evidence than I can think of. Nine months go by, but Lee isn't getting any better. Since he doesn't really know the whole story about the creepy couple in his house, he's not drinking the pomelo tea. Late one night, he gets up and starts to pound on the walls of his house with a hammer while screaming the entire time. Lee is starting to go completely insane. They're desperate, so my father takes Lee to China with him to go see the seer in person. This time, the seer knows exactly what to do. A ceremony, you know, the Chinese burn、uh, gifts to the spirit.、Uh, we burn a car. You burn a car? <laughs> well, no, a real car, a paper car. <laughs> the 3D models, very elaborate.、Burn、so you burn all this stuff. Of course, lots of cash. <laughs> Uh, passport with a big American visa on it. <laughs> piles and piles of cash and the paper Mercedes Benz.
snitch, snitch, I'm a real big timer. A Mercedes costs $10, the Volkswagen costs $8. So what the hell you buy? <laughs> Make sure you get the best treasure chest full of cash. And the seer dressed up to conduct the ceremony. Oh man, he looked the part. He's got these Taoist robes, he's got a sword, he's got a Taoist hat, he's got a bell, ding, 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 he went and chanted all these things for a full hour. At the end of it, they said, okay, as long as you live in this house, nothing great will happen to you, but for now, the ghost will not bother you anymore. For now, he doesn't see ghosts anymore? Not that I know of. Have you seen him recently? I saw him a few months ago. He doesn't have that panic look around him anymore. Well, you know, he never, he didn't see things anymore. Maybe I should go and try to see if there were really an old lady, an old man. Look up the history of what happened there. Well, that's not a very good idea. First of all, you probably won't see anything. And if you did see something, you're totally screwed. Why? <laughs> because they might come home with you. Why would you want to screw around with things you absolutely have no understanding with? That's not a good idea. <laughs> how, how, how are they going to come home with me? In the backseat of a car? They'll come home with you. Any way they can. I was raised to be a rational person. But now... When I'm driving home late at night, I keep an eye on the back seat. Ghosts. Just like people sometimes need to be told what to do. You've got to tell a spirit, this is how things are going to be. Now get with the program. Now, that gets a little bit harder when the spirit is used to telling other people what's what. Especially when that spirit used to be a judge. I bought my house around six years ago. People would frequently see me out around the house and say, Oh, you got the judge's house, huh? Or you live in the judge's place. And I was like, Oh, wow, the judge. I asked them, I said, Did you know what the judge's name was? And they were like, No, we never knew his name. We just always called him Judge. And he lived here for a long time. You know, I said, well, what judge was he of? You know, and nobody knew anything. They just always knew this older man that lived in the house, looking out his windows and making sure what's going on in the neighborhood and would, you know, kind of shout at people if they were out of line. Well, like a year into working on the house, it was a really, really calm, sunny day. It was beautiful. And I had come in from the outside and went to my kitchen sink and had noticed at that point that the window was going back and forth. It's plastic, because of the neighborhood I live in, you know, for gunshots and all that. It was just going back and forth in the windowsill, as if there was a lot of wind outside. So I stepped outside, and it was completely calm and still. I was really perplexed, and I walked back inside, and at that point, as I walked back inside, I felt this overwhelming feeling of some kind of menace or something around me, and my hair just stood up on end, end of its tippy-tip. I felt afraid. And at that point, literally a couple seconds later after feeling that way, the phone rang. 
And I was kind of relieved, and I was like, okay. Answered the phone, and believe it or not, it was like the sound of... And I was just so afraid. I just slammed the phone down, and I went straight to like what I've seen in Poltergeist, and I was like, go to the light, go to the light, whoever you are. There's no bad here. Go to the other side and stay away from me. <laughs> After that, every time I'd go back to that part of my house, I'd feel a little weird, feel that presence. Things would happen where the window would shake back and forth. There was a time when witness with my partner, a plate got pushed right off the counter and broke. We both saw it. And so there was definitely some kind of spirit in the house. And one night, you know, it was a Friday night, got home for the weekend and was drinking some wine, got a little tipsy, and the window started going back and forth, and I was just, like, at the end of my rope, and I was like, great! Jesus Christ, I got a damn ghost. I'm done. Get out of here! Hit the road, judge! Stop eating that fudge! Because here come the judge! And from that time on, I never have felt the presence of the ghost. Many thanks to Frederick Horman for bringing us that tale. Stay tuned. This is Snap Judgment, the spook episode. Keep that holy water ready because it's about to get scary up in here. Snap Judgment. My name is Glenn Washington, and thanks for listening to today's Snap Judgment podcast. We're really, really proud of it. Maybe, just maybe, I don't know, but maybe you can't get it on your own local public radio station. And friends, that is a tragedy. That's a tragedy that you have the power to rectify. Let them know that you need Snap Judgment on your local public radio station. Let them know right away, quick, because this is something we all need to enjoy. Snap Judgment. Much love. All right. Today on Snap Judgment, we're here to tell you, be afraid. Never, ever let them take away your fear. You're listening to Snap Judgment, the spooked episode and we're getting a little spooked right now just thinking about what's coming up next I'm going to get out of the way and let Donna Dorico tell her story I was really lonely and I would go across the street there was this, this big wooded area and this lake I would try to catch minnows in the stream and entertain myself it was a sad time for me. But then Nancy came along and it was so wonderful. I went to the woods, to the lake again as usual after school. And then I I heard something. There was a really pretty girl with long hair. She was by herself and she was walking towards me. And when she got all the way up to the stream, she stopped and she said, "What you doing?" Fishing for minnows. I was shy. I didn't know how to act with another kid my age. 
What's your name? She said her name was Nancy. We hung out that day, and I kept it inside. I didn't want her to know how desperate I was for a friend, but I was so happy. This one particular day, I asked her if she wanted to come to my house to have dinner, and she said sure. It was just about dinner time, and we walked in, and I told my mom that I had met a friend. I said, "Is it okay if she stays for dinner?" And she said, "Sure." And then we went to the dinner table, and everybody was already there, and they were, you know, starting to sit down and serve plates. And so she went and got another chair from the dining room and pulled it up to the table for Nancy. And Nancy sat down, and then we started to get served. And my mom said, "Should we wait for Nancy?" And I said. Nancy, she's right here, and I realized they couldn't see her. I was just silent the rest of dinner because I wasn't sure what to make of that. I was seven years old. I guess they thought maybe I was playing with them, but then after that, every day when Nancy was around, they started seeing that I wasn't joking. Nancy never talked about why she couldn't be seen by anybody else. She just shrugged her shoulders. We moved on to the next thing we were going to talk about. I wasn't lonely anymore, and she was really nice. She was just a normal kid to me. My family did indulge me. They knew that kids sometimes have imaginary friends. Don't sit there and don't get in the car. Nancy's getting in, and you're going to step on Nancy. It was starting to get to the point where it was enough for my parents. It was a day like every other day when Nancy was around, and she was spending the night with me. That night, we were just laying on my bed. You know, we were whispering the way kids do, and it was past my bedtime. My dad was in the in the den reading. My dad kept coming back to my bedroom. Donna, go to bed and get your sleep. Saying it's bedtime. That's enough. And Nancy and I would keep giggling, you know, the way girls do. Go to sleep, young lady. We started getting a little bit louder. Nancy wasn't tired, and I wasn't tired either. We were just having fun. I could hear my dad coming back again, so we both rolled over and pretended like we were asleep. And he he opened the door, and he was really upset. I told you five times now to go to bed, and I'm hearing you in here giggling. There's nobody here. I said, but Dad, Nancy, and when I said Nancy, he, he just exploded. There is, there no, is Nancy. no Nancy. I said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'll go to bed. And he said, No, no. There's no one here. It's enough already with this Nancy. And my dad looked around the room and said, Nancy. Nancy. It's time for you to go. I want you to leave now, and I don't want you to come back. And I started crying. And Nancy was really sad. She was just weeping. She got off the bed really slowly, and she was wiping her tears away. And I told her not to go. She said she had to. I just I laid back down and I buried my face in the pillow and I was crying. I looked around and she had left. She wasn't there anymore. 
the next morning, I went to meet everybody at the breakfast table before school, and everybody was really quiet, and I could tell something was very wrong. And my dad, he said, Donna, did Nancy have long blonde hair and wear a white gauzy dress? Nobody had ever asked me what she looked like before. Nobody cared about my dumb imaginary friend, but he described her perfectly. And I said, yeah, that's exactly what Nancy looks like. And my dad just went completely ashen and told me that he had seen Nancy. And I said, oh, well, where is she? You know. Then he told me that after he shut my door the night before, that he had gone back to the den and continued reading his book. And then he heard a noise. And he he leaned over and looked down the hall, and a little girl with long blonde hair and this gauzy dress was coming from my bedroom, walking down the hall, and walked right past him, and she was crying. And he watched her walk to the front door down the hall and just faded into the front door. She never, she didn't come around anymore. And I was alone again. (laughs) I guess it dawned on me later, but I didn't notice at the time, was that Nancy never picked anything up or moved anything around. She was just there. I always would open doors for her. My, My mom and dad went to the library and they eventually found an old record from a couple of hundred years before where there was a young girl who was seven years old who had drowned in the lake across the street. The dress that she was wearing fit from that time period and her name was Nancy and she was the same age. They knew that 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 was her. I think I was, for her, the same thing she was for me. We were both lonely. I'd rather remember her as just a real little girl. I don't like thinking about the other. The story you just heard was from Celebrity Ghost Stories, which airs Saturday nights on the Bio Channel. And now I'm going to need a minute. i got to go purify my soul before... I relate this next tale. Just you wait just a few seconds, and I'll be right back. See, when I was a kid, during the summers, I sometimes spent the weekend at my buddy Tommy's house. We went to the same church, and he had a pool, right? He also had a sister, cute, kind of shy. We sat down to dinner, and there was an empty seat, so I tried to act all innocent. Where's Jenny? Oh, Jenny's fine, Mrs. Jones told me, just having one of her spells. Don't you worry none about her. See, in my church, going to the doctor wasn't allowed. The apostle said the Lord had spilled his blood and was all the doctor we needed. We just had to pray for healing. Jesus would answer in his good time, but if things got serious, we were supposed to call the minister for an anointing. And the crazy thing is, I'm the one who said it. Shouldn't we call the pastor? Tommy kicked me under the table. Miss James looked hard at Mr. James. The chicken passed from one person to the other. Yes, I think we should. In fact, 
We should have called a long time ago. Your pastor can't come over here every time that girl has a spell, woman. That's not what it's for. Let the pastor say what it's for. That's not our place. Tommy kicked me again. It hurt. Fine. Fine. Go on ahead. Call and interrupt the pastor's nice dinner just because Jenny's having one of her spells. Call him. She did. A half hour later, pastor knocked on the door. Carl? Betty? Hello, boys. Carl? What's wrong with your little girl? Well, it's nothing, really. She just she just sometimes gets a shaking is all. She just shakes fit to bug all, and then she don't shake, and she's fine. Lots of people go through phases like that. Betty's making these mountains out of molehills. Pastor, uh, can I get you some coffee? Betty, get the pastor some coffee. The pastor took a piece of white cloth out of his vest pocket and a small vial of olive oil. He unfolded the cloth and smeared a little of the oil into it. We were both, me and Tommy, trying to disappear towards the basement when he stopped us. Boys, the Lord's healing depends on the prayers of the faithful, so I'm going to need you to stay and pray with me. I knew Tommy would have kicked me again, but I was standing too far away. Jenny came down the stairs then, wearing pink and blue pajamas, hair wild, eyes red. She looked surprised to see me, and I knew I wasn't supposed to be there. I wasn't supposed to see her like that, and I wanted to go home and leave these people to their trial. You could see it plain as day, her right arm twitching, sometimes her shoulder or her leg. Miss James started to cry. Baby, what is wrong with your arm? Why is your arm moving like that? Pastor, why is her arm moving like that? That's not for me to know, Betty. We're just going to put this in the Lord's hands with the Lord's anointing. He dabbed some more oil on the cloth and reached down to touch Jenny's head and she she growled a low steamy throaty growl that shouldn't have come out of a girl's throat pastor snatched his hand back like he'd been bitten Jenny's face tightened don't touch me Jenny you do not speak to the pastor like that it's not her Betty it's not her what do you mean I'm going to need everybody to pray with me now. Get thee from this child, demon! The growling grew louder, more angry. Pastor, what's happening? What are you doing? What are you doing to my baby? This child is possessed of an evil spirit, and I mean to send it back to the devil. She's just a baby. Jenny fell to the floor, both of her arms failing. Out, demon! pastor put the oil on her forehead and she screamed as if it burned fire. In the name of the king of holiness and the name of the father that brought light into this world I command you out demon out out of this child. A rank stench as Jenny voided herself on the floor for thine is the kingdom and the glory and the power. Jenny's eyes rolled back into her head. Her arms stopped spasming. Her eyes still white. She smiled. She spoke. This child is mine. The pastor broke open his vial of oil and dumped it on her head. Out, 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 out. This is a sanctified child, and you will not have her, demon. By the blood, the blood, the blood, the blood, the blood, the blood of he who has died for us, you will not have her. Jenny stretched 
tight, 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 like she was being pulled and then sprung back into a fetal position. Mama, mama, mama's right here. Darling, mama's right here. Everything's going to be all right. Isn't that, Pastor? Tell her everything's going to be all right. Pastor didn't say anything. He was breathing heavy pain, looking around the room. Miss Jones led Jenny upstairs. Mr. Jones followed him. Thank you so much for that, Pastor. Thank you. Pastor seemed unsteady as he departed the house. Don't stop praying, boys. Do not stop praying. The floor was covered in excrement and fluid and shards of broken glass. Tommy got some buckets and towels. I grabbed a mop. We stayed silent, each of us in our own heads, until Tommy shouted at me, What are you doing? What, what, what are you doing? What? What? Tommy pointed at my arm. I looked down. It was twitching. You've been listening to Snap Judgment, the spoot episode. And Snap Judgment was produced by myself, but never alone, friends. I don't even like being alone. Please give it up for The Undertaker, the chief production maker, Mr. Mark Ristich. Rita Daniels, who likes the taste of blood. Mo Steph, who times her stories to the sound of a beating heart. Miss Stephanie Fruit. And Anna Sussman, who speaks to dead people. The man who sold his soul to the devil for half a bag of chili cheese fries. Mr. Will Urbina. And if you see the Corporation for Public Broadcasting carrying a shovel to the graveyard on the night of a full moon, hand them cloves of garlic and bid them Godspeed. We certainly would. Many thanks to the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. And if you want to put the public in public radio, take off the mask, put down the chainsaw, just get you some of that public radio exchange at prx.org. And even though this is not the news, in fact, you could find an old friend, lure him to the catacombs to taste your fine wine, chain him to the wall, seal him into the chamber with brick and mortar, dance a jolly jig of joy, and you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is NPR. The producer of this very podcast listening, judging, and condemning all she hears out of my mouth right now is Snap Judgment's own podcast producer, Rita Daniel.